Good morning, everyone. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, uh, this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, and we're going to be looking specifically at uh, verses 22 to 24. Now, last week I told you about a Texas gem dealer, Roy Wetstein, that was pawing through a Tupperware bowl of cheaply priced rocks at a mineral show in Arizona. And he came across a lavender gray kind of potato sized stone that looked a bit special. And so he asked the amateur collector, you want $15 for this? Tell you what, replied the collector, I'll let you have it for 10. It's not as pretty as the others. And so Wetstein walked away with the largest, the world's largest star sapphire, which was later valued at roughly $2.3 million. Now, if you don't know the value of what you already possess, you too might let it go for something worth far less. And that's exactly what Esau did with his birthright, if you remember uh, back earlier in chapter 12, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He didn't really appreciate the value of his birthright, which entitled him to the blessings of God's promises that were given to him through Abraham. And because he didn't appreciate the value of his birthright, he traded it all away for a bowl of stew. He gave away internal, eternal blessings for instant gratification. In a very similar sense, that's what these professing Christians in the book of Hebrews are doing or in danger of doing as well. They're heavily persecuted. They're afraid. They're not able to attend the synagogue. They're not able to trade in the marketplace. Uh, their children are not able to sit under the rabbinical teaching. And so they are ostracized out of the only community they know, the community they grew up in, all because of their profession of faith. They're scorned, they're mocked, they're ridiculed, and even in some cases imprisoned for their profession of faith. Many have felt, held fast to their profession, but now some are tempted to walk away from Christianity and return back to Judaism. So the author here wants to give them an illustration of what they already have in Christ. He wants them to realize the value of what they have if their profession in, of, uh, in faith of Christ was true. He wants them to know what, you, what they already have under the new covenant versus what they're tempted to go back to under the old covenant. And so to do that, to demonstrate that, he's going to contrast two mountains he wants to contrast the terrors of Mount Sinai, which we saw last week in verses 18 to 21, and that's representing what life was like uh, for the Jews under the law. And he wants to compare that with all the glories of Mount Zion in verses 22 to 24 that picture the joy of life under the new covenant. So before we dig into verses 22 to 24, Let's take a quick review of just what we covered last week in verses 18 to 21. Now, in verses 18 and 19, we saw last week that the mountain at Sinai was filled with fear and judgment. And the author of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is painting us a word picture to make his point. And what that word picture is used for is to provide a contrast, again, between these two mountains. Now, the first mountain that's described here, while not named specifically, is without a doubt Mount Sinai. And the word picture immediately brings to memory a time in Israel's history in the Exodus prior to receiving the Ten Commandments. And 
Now, what, what is this word picture telling us? Simply telling us that there's an aspect of God that is to be feared. There's an aspect of God that includes judgment and fear and wrath and terror and divine punishment. And that's the picture we saw last week when we looked at Exodus 19, 1 through 17. That's what Mount Sinai represents. And if you'll remember, I talked to you last week that that's not something you hear a lot of in churches today because uh, they focus more on the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness, which are indeed all parts of who God is. But again, God is not a pincushion. We don't get to take out the characteristics, the attributes, the essential characteristics of who God is and just take those out because to do so is to change God and God is immutable. God is unchangeable. So Mount Sinai here pictures God as he interacted with his people under the law. And you, and you all know that under the law, there really was no gray area. There was strict adherence to what God commanded or faces wrath, faces judgment, uh, or certainly divine punishment. And how did the people respond? Well, if you see in your text in verse 19 in Hebrews chapter 12, when the people heard this, they begged that no further words be spoken to them. So they were without a doubt terrified even at the voice of God. And as they looked up on the mountain that day, they saw a mountain full of fire and smoke. And they stood on ground that was shaking uh, beneath their very feet. And trumpet blasts were getting louder and louder. And the voice of God in the thunder petrified them. And that's exactly what God did at Sinai. He made every man, woman, and child there painfully aware of their own sinfulness as they witnessed this terrifying demonstration of a holy God. And that's what the law does, doesn't it? It exposes our sinfulness before a holy, perfect, righteous God. It exposes our hypocritical self-righteousness, and it shows us the majestic, transcendent holiness of God. And my friends, no one can stand under the rigorous scrutiny of the law and not recognize their own sinfulness. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what the law is intended to do. It's intended to be our schoolmaster, our tutor, to, to show us that we cannot approach God under our own terms and that, uh, that uh, our sinfulness becomes exposed when we come into the presence of a holy, righteous God. Then in verse 20, we saw our second point that the mountain at Sinai demonstrated our need for a mediator. Again, the theological truth behind this command is the holiness of God. God is, apart from God's provision in Christ, unapproachable by sinful men. He's so holy that even animals cannot get too close or they must be put to death. And so at Mount Sinai, initially, remember Moses was the only one allowed to go up on the mountain into God's presence. But the people could not draw near to God through Moses. He was a sinner just like them. And so while the law reveals God's holiness and convicts us as deserving of his judgment, Jesus is God's mediator who paid the penalty for all that believe in him. He is the mediator we actually need to approach the other mountain, Mount Zion, which we'll look at in a minute. So verses 18 and 19, we see the mountain at Sinai was filled with fear and judgment. Then in verse 20, we saw the mountain at Sinai demonstrated our need for a mediator. And finally, in verse 21, we saw that even Moses feared and trembled as he approached the Lord. 
beloved, it doesn't matter whom you are when you stand under the law and under the judgment of God. There wasn't any forgiveness being offered at Sinai. Uh, God never told Moses or Aaron to bring up a sacrifice and atone for the people at that mountain. There was only judgment, wrath, terror, fear. And so the author's point is that if if we're going to seek refuge again in the law, as some of those were tempted to do, to go back under the law, they're not going to find the peace and rest they desire. Because like Moses, the only thing they're going to do and experience is overwhelming fear. Well, that sets the ground for us here, the table, if you will, for our verses, the contrast to Mount Sinai, and that's going to be Mount Zion. But before we unpack that, let's go to the Lord, shall we? in prayer here this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful glories we're about to see for what all true believers have. And Lord, what that means to us. And Father, we know there are many lost. We know there are even some who would call themselves Christian who still believe that they can earn their way to heaven. But Father, your word is very clear. There is only one way to heaven, and that is through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is uh, by grace, through faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And so, Father, I pray that as we, as we review these glories here, these wonderful truths in our text here today, that all true believers will resonate in, in how wonderful it is for us. But, Father, I also pray that our heart will grieve for those who do not know you. And I pray, Lord, that if your spirit is willing, that all who hear this, Lord, if there's any that do not know you, that they would come to know you and they would surrender their life to you in Christ, recognizing, Lord, that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. Father, thank you again. Open up our hearts and minds to your wonderful truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn to our text, shall we, in Hebrews chapter 12, and let's look at Verse 22, we'll read that together now. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Point number one in your notes, believers have come to a heavenly city through their faith in Christ. Now, the entire tenor of these verses is in stark contrast to the preceding verses where the, pre the previous verses depicted fear and separation from God. Here we're going to see great joy and inclusion with God. And the author of Hebrews is going to list seven blessings, seven glorious truths that all true believers enjoy under the new covenant. And I want you to notice first that phrase, but you have come. Now this is in contrast to verse 18, which started off, for you have not come. That text, you have come, is in the perfect tense. And that perfect tense emphasizes our permanent continuing state. Matter of fact, it's the same word used in Hebrews 4.16 when we're told to come boldly to the throne of grace, to come permanently, continuously to the throne of grace. It's used again in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, when uh, our text says, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. That's speaking of Christ again. So we see uh, is, this is in contrast to those in verse 18, where the author of Hebrews said, 
This is not the mountain you have come to. If you're a true believer, you have not come to Mount Sinai, which we just talked about last week, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now, exactly where is this mountain we have come to? Well, the author describes the new place where believers have come with three descriptive descriptive terms right off the bat. The first is Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is the name for the stronghold in Jerusalem that David conquered from the Jebusites, and you can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Now, when David took the city from the Jebusites, you may recall, he brought the Ark of the Covenant there for its new home. And when Solomon built the temple and installed the Ark at Zion or in Jerusalem, it became synonymous with the earthly dwelling place of God. So thus making Mount Zion the place where God dwelt with his people. Now Hebrews mentions this city more than any other New Testament book. It is indeed the city of the living God. But notice also the second description is that it is a heavenly city. Now we've already been told that Abraham and the Old Testament saints were not looking for an earthly city, but what? A heavenly one. And thus our author makes it clear that Mount Zion, of which he speaks, is not the earthly Jerusalem and its temple, but he's speaking about a heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 tells us, this is the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It's the city that God prepared for the Old Testament saints who died in faith without receiving the promises. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 16. It's a real place, but it's also one that we have not yet seen. And, and it lies somewhere in the future for all of God's people. Matter of fact, later in Hebrews chapter 13, we are reminded that while we dwell now in this place spiritually, there is still a sense in which it is yet to come. Now, true believers... We are already citizens of this heavenly city, and we already spiritually enjoy its privileges. This is what Paul was telling us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, when he wrote, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, spiritually, we're already at Mount Zion by virtue of our union in Christ. The moment we were saved, where our citizenship then is in Mount Zion, this heavenly city. And Paul reminds us of that uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. He says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And so thus, thus unlike those who were under the law, for true believers, we have complete and unhindered access to Christ. And we are at Mount Zion for good. Once again, but you have come to Mount Zion is in the perfect tense. It's again emphasizing our permanent continuing state. And so we're citizens of the city of the living God, which is in heaven. The next thing we come to when we come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, it's also to the myriads of angels. Now these are angels that are having a celebration of worship with God, and God is the focus of their worship. 
Now, spiritually, my friends, as true believers, you are coming spiritually to an innumerable number of worshiping angels. Moses tells us that myriads of holy ones attended the giving of the law. That's in Deuteronomy 30, 33, verse 2. And then from Daniel, he wrote, thousands upon thousands attended him, the ancient of, ancient of days, God. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him in Daniel chapter 7. David wrote in Psalm 68, verse 17, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. If thousands and thousands of angels were present at the giving of the law, we can't even number the angels who are present at the gathering at Mount Zion. And so in coming to Christ and the new covenant, we come to the grace of Zion, the peace and safety of the heavenly Jerusalem in the fellowship of angels. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it glorious to realize that the angels are joined with us spiritually and we're joined with them in a celebration of praise and worship to God? And even though we're not there physically, spiritually, that already happens as we, as we, when we worship even here on earth. Spiritually, we're still worshiping in heaven, worshiping our Lord and Savior. So point number one, believers have come to a heavenly city through their faith in Christ. Now look at verse 23 as we move along in our text. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So point number two, you have come to the church of the firstborn and before a righteous judge. You have come to the church of the firstborn and before a righteous judge. Now let's unpack that. There's a lot there. What, first of all, is meant by the church of the firstborn? Well, that word church is the Greek word ekklesia, and it's a compound word, uh, ek meaning out, and lesia meaning to call, to call out, or the called out ones. So the church are all those who have been called out and who belong to the firstborn. Now, what is the firstborn, or who is the firstborn referring to? Well, let me just share this with you. Of the nine New Testament occurrences of firstborn, Seven of them refer to Jesus Christ. Only once does it refer to the firstborn in Egypt, and that's actually in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28. And then here in our verse, in verse 23 of chapter 12, where it's a plural and it refers to the saints. So the term emphasizes our rights of inheritance as God's children. Now, natural families have only one firstborn, but in God's family, all the people of Christ are the firstborn children of God through their union with him who is the firstborn. And that birthright of all those who are by faith firstborn is not to be discarded away like Esau did. Now, notice also that it is for those whom, whom are enrolled in heaven. Now, again, this is a, I know I'm throwing a lot of Greek at you here, but it's important to really understand this text. Now, this is a perfect passive participle. Now, what does that mean? I, I don't want you to, to say, oh, well, that, that has no bearing because it's important to our text. I wouldn't share it with you otherwise. 
A perfect tense is something that was done in the past, but the results carry on into the present. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he, he, he cried out, it is finished. That was a perfect passive participle, or in other words, it was in the perfect tense, which means that it was a one-time act, but the results carry with it through today. It was finished then, and it's finished today. It'll, it's, it'll be remain finished in the future. So it was a one-time act completed in the past, but the results carry on even through the present. And here's that beautiful truth from the grammar. We've had our names written down in the book of heaven. And that enrollment, that registration is still valid, my friends. Now, have you ever planned a vacation and gotten to the hotel and found out they lost your reservation? It's frustrating, isn't it? Well, that could never happen with your citizenship in heaven. If you're a true believer, my friends, your name is enrolled in heaven. You are still registered. You are still enrolled and your citizenship can never be taken away. What a glorious truth that is. But notice also, we have come to God, the judge of all. How is it though, a joy you might be asking, how is it a joy to come before an all-powerful judge who knows your every thought, every motive, every intention of your heart? Well, remember first, the author is writing to a persecuted church and so they could rest in the fact that one day God would judge all of their enemies for those who, who do not repent, those who were carrying out very vicious acts of persecution against them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so they could rest in the righteousness of God to deal with their enemies. And again, uh, that relieved them from trying to take vengeance themselves. Uh, God has said, vengeance is mine. So they didn't need to do that. So in, in a very real sense, Having God as the judge of all, not just of themselves, but of all men, uh, they could rest in the fact that there would be justice at some point in time when all stood before the Lord. But secondly, we can rejoice that God will reward everything that we have ever done for and ever done in the name of Jesus Christ. At his Bema judgment seat, all of our works will be on display, won't they? All of our works. They'll either be wood, hay, and straw. All those will be burned up. But then our, the, the good works, right? The gold and the silver. Even a cup of water, Matthew tells us. Uh, and Jesus tells us, Matthew chapter 10. Even a cup of cold water given in his name will be rewarded. So we can rejoice, my friends, to serve such a judge who will judge us righteously without bias without hypocrisy, and a judge who loves us. That's why Paul reminds us in Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in what? In doing good, for in due time will we, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So we've come to the church of the firstborn, those who are enrolled, and we are enrolled in heaven. We come before God, the judge of all, but also notice we come before the spirits of righteous made perfect, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And this refers to all the saints who have died and gone to heaven. They've not received their new resurrection bodies. That awaits the second coming of Christ, but their spirits are made perfect. They are absent from the body, but they're present with the Lord. And for them, all temptation and sin is over. They are completely righteous in Christ. 
and they will be throughout all eternity. Amen. And although we are still in this body, fighting against sin every day, we are one with these saints spiritually already. And one day soon we will be with them in heaven. Now, heaven is not filled with people who were good enough. And heaven is not filled with people who earned their righteousness through their good works. Heaven is filled with people who were made righteous through what Jesus did for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Heaven is filled with people declared righteous through their faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross on their behalf. So to come to Christ is to come to Zion, which is to come to grace. It is to come to the living city of Jerusalem, which is in heaven. It's to come and join with angels in celebration and worship. It is to come and join the church of the firstborn, which is fellowship with other believers. It is to come into this heavenly city before God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the, of the righteous made perfect. So point number one, believers have come to a heavenly city through their faith in Christ. Point number two, you have come to the church of the firstborn and before a righteous judge. And point number three, you have come to the mediator of a new covenant. Look at that verse 24 as we read it in our text. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Point number three again, you have come to the mediator of a new covenant. He calls him by his name, Jesus. Why? Because that's his redemptive name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall what? Save his people from their sins. Yeshua, God save us. And so he says, you're coming to your mediator. When you come to Zion as a believer, you're, you're coming to your mediator. You're coming to your savior. And there is no other mediator. There's only one, 1 Timothy 2, 5. There's only one, the man Christ Jesus. Notice also that this is a new covenant. Why, Why is it new? Well, we learned that back in chapter 8, didn't we? Of Hebrews chapter 8, this new covenant is better, rendering the old one obsolete. Finally, there's one more thing we have come to as true believers. We have come to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, some understand this to refer to Abel's sacrifice. But in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, God tells Cain that Abel's blood is crying to me from the ground. So I understand it here to mean that whereas Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and justice, Jesus's blood, sprinkled on the believer, speaks God's word of forgiveness and mercy to the guilty sinner. Incidentally, this is the last of the 12 uses of the word better in Hebrews. What's the theme of Hebrews? Jesus is better. Jesus's blood is better than our blood, which God demands as the penalty for our sin. It's better than the blood of bulls and goats, which never could atone for sin. And if by faith you are sprinkled with his blood, you have the joy of knowing that God has forgiven all of your sins. So in closing, my friends, 
Mount Zion is quite a contrast to Mount Sinai. And the atmosphere evoked by the language here is very different, isn't it? This is not a place, when you read about Mount Zion, it's not a place of terror or fear or judgment. This is not a place that is unapproachable, that strikes fear in the hearts of those who draw near. No, this is a place where there's great joy and great peace. This is a place full of life where angels are celebrating and worshiping with people who have been perfected in glory in it in a place where justice and mercy meet and are fully satisfied. And when you come to Jesus Christ, when you make a, a confession of faith, when you're a, a true believer, you don't go to Mount Sinai, my friends. You're coming to Mount Zion. And so the author of Hebrews is saying to all those who've made a profession of faith, but are now tempted to fall back to Judaism, to, to go under back under a system of the law again. He was saying, if your profession of faith was true, you've not come to Sinai. You've come to Zion. And look at all the glorious things that are yours even now spiritually and will one day be realized fully. And every person who is hearing this, this little church in Hebrews, every person knew what he meant. They knew Zion represented grace and forgiveness. Matter of fact, uh, Psalm 2, when the Messiah comes, verse 6, Psalm 2, verse 6, God says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. You see, Zion symbolizes the approachable God, whereas Sinai symbolizes the unapproachable God. And God is always unapproachable by our works, but he is approachable by grace if you make atonement for your sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you've, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you too do not need to stand at the foot of the mountain while God dwells on its peak amid the thick darkness and the devouring fire and the quaking ground. Rather, you come even to his seat before his throne of grace. You dwell in his presence and you have constant access to him. And the scriptures tell us that if you're a true believer, you are in the church of the firstborn. Your name is enrolled in heaven and you have come right now to these seven wonderful truths, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem where myriads of angels are worshiping in the fellowship of fellow believers to God, the judge of all, to Jesus Christ, our, our, our mediator, and to the forgiveness from his shed blood. My friends, it is grace that ushers you into God's presence, into the heavenly Jerusalem where God is. And that's where you and I as true believers live and move and have our being in him. We have come to the spiritual Mount Zion, not by our works, but by grace. And I trust 
that you too have made a true profession of faith and that these wonderful truths are realized by you spiritually even now as I speak. But as always, if there's one in our midst, if there's one listening today who does not know you as Lord and Savior, oh, I pray, I urge you, I plead with you to surrender your life to Christ, to recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that no matter how many works you think you've done, no matter what form of righteousness you've justified in your mind as the reason why you think you deserve heaven, all of that falls short of what the standard really truly is for a perfect, holy, righteous God. And that standard that is demanded is perfection. And that's what God was demonstrating at Mount Sinai. He was demonstrating that you could not approach God under your own terms, under your own form of righteousness. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls that self-righteousness and that is repugnant to God, that we would even think that we could determine our own path into his holy, righteous presence. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, every time you see someone come into the presence of a God, who's holy and righteous and perfect, they all have the same reaction, which is to fall flat on their face and cry out in their sinfulness and beg and ask God for forgiveness. And so, my friends, as you're listening here this morning, if that describes you, if the Lord is drawing you near to himself, if you recognize that's who you are, if you've lived your whole life thinking that you were going to get to heaven by your own terms, by your own sense of righteousness, I pray that you would review these texts again and realize that you cannot approach God under your own terms. There is only one way, and that is through Christ. It is your belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior your belief in his atoning work on the cross, his shed blood that cleanses you of all unrighteousness, your belief that he was dead, buried, and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father as an advocate for you and that he will one day return again in glory. My friends, if you don't know Christ, may today be the day you make the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. For all those who know Jesus Christ already, my friends, I, I pray, beloved, that you will realize these seven glorious truths that are already yours as children of God. And someday we'll realize them fully when we're in the presence of our Lord. But now, even now, even though you can't see them fully now, know from the truth of God's word that these seven spiritual realities these glories are already yours as children of God. Your name is already enrolled in heaven, in the Lamb's book of life. You are children of the firstborn. You do dwell in Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And someday, my friends, perhaps someday soon, we will be there with our Lord and Savior. To be absent from the body is to be present with our Lord. What a glorious day that will be. So, beloved, I pray that you know these truths, understand these truths, and live in the light of these truths. And I ask this 
in our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for your glorious truth. Again, Father, I pray for any in the listening audience here, Lord, if they do not know you, I pray today would be the day they would surrender their life to you. All the angels rejoice, Lord, when a sinner comes to faith. And Father, for those who do know you, I pray, Lord, that we would live in the truth of the reality of what we've learned today. And we would recognize where our citizenship truly is. And Father, we would live each day in obedience to you, glorifying you through everything we say and do. Father, be with us now. Watch over these dear saints. Keep them safe, Lord. Put a hedge of protection around them. Keep them from the evil one. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we know that we love you because you loved us first. So, Father, again, uh, finish this message for us all in, in our hearts and our minds through, your, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.